This is episode 23 of the Progression Health Podcast, and I'm here with Dr. Damon Ashworth. Damon, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm Dr. Ashworth, and I'm a clinical psychologist. So I studied in Australia and worked there in private practice, but I'm based in Vanuatu at the moment, volunteering here with the Ministry of Health and also down at the hospital. Brilliant, yeah. So let's, uh, let's just dive in a little bit on how your work went before you got to where you are in Vanuatu, um, and then we can follow up to figure out how you got to Vanuatu. So uh, what was your initial work in, in Melbourne like? Uh, yes, so my research was a trial that looked at cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia in people with insomnia and depression. Uh, and what we found is that people were taking antidepressants and they still weren't sleeping very well. Uh, so what we did targeted their sleep through four sessions of CBTI. And through that, they were able to improve their sleep, but it also improved their mood as well. So we did that. And then I followed that up with work at the Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre where I continued to put that research into practice to help people sleep better and improve their lives. Yeah, that's interesting. I heard a stat recently that 90 to 95% of all, I'm not sure, was it like uh, mental health kind of issues? I'm not sure exactly how you would diagnose it, but sleep was an issue in 90 to 95% of uh, mental health issues, we'll call them. Uh, maybe you can add a bit more like light to that stat, but basically they co-occur, so poor sleep, and, and mental health issues are very, very common. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I would call it bi-directional as well. So sometimes people, uh, they're sleeping fine and then they have a mental health issue. So they have anxiety or they have depression and then they start to sleep poorly. Uh, but other times it can happen the other way around, that people aren't struggling with psychological issues or mental health issues and then they start to sleep poorly. And then after that, that's where maybe some more anxiety comes in or some depression comes in. So it can go one way or the other, and that sometimes sleep comes first and sometimes it comes second. Well, that's fascinating because I think a lot of people would have one or other of those. And when sleep gets particularly poor or mental health gets particularly challenged, uh, they can set each other up. So that's like really interesting to hear. So mm -hmm. in, in your study that you did, can you tell us like some of the kind of the main findings of that or what you learned from that? Yes, yeah, so I think the main findings, like we had hypothesized or we thought that it was the sleep problems that were leading to the ongoing difficulties. And, and I think that's what it really showed is that once we gave people some skills and, you know, challenged their beliefs around sleep a bit and they were able to start sleeping better, then they started to feel a lot more confident and then they started to feel less stressed, less anxious, uh, less depressed. And then over time, their fatigue started to get better as well. So I think the, the main takeaway is that you can't just forget about sleep. Um, if somebody is sleeping poorly and they do have mental health issues, we want to be able to target both. And sometimes if you can target the sleep first, then it can get rid of a lot of the other issues too. Yeah, kind of like taking more of an upstream approach instead of maybe using something yeah. like medication. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, what is, is going on kind of like mechanistically that like just by sleeping more, someone can like be less depressed or like less anxious? What, what's really happening behind the scenes? Uh, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure if it's necessarily sleeping more. So some people that you see with insomnia, it is that they're not sleeping enough, maybe only sleeping, you know, four or five hours a night, they say, and that by improving how much time they do sleep, then they start to feel better. But insomnia is considered a subjective problem. And what that means is sometimes people might be getting, say, six and a half hours of sleep, 
but they're highly distressed about it. They're thinking, I'm not sleeping enough. This is wrecking everything in my life. And so we also want to start to challenge some of those beliefs. So sometimes we don't need to improve the total sleep time too much, maybe, you know, from six and a half to seven hours. But if you're able to make people realize that, hey, maybe you don't need eight hours, maybe seven hours is enough for you. And maybe you can function during the day with that. Then people become less distressed. They start sleeping better, but it improves a lot of other things as well. Okay. So it's kind of like uh, one of those kind of human sort of almost flaws in thinking like catastrophization, basically, or catastrophizing is, is at the root of the problem with insomnia? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Uh, yeah, so there, there can be contesting. There, there's a whole bunch of like unhelpful beliefs that people can develop over time with insomnia or with sleep difficulties. And it's really important to start to challenge these. So I think if you get people to start sleeping a bit better or to focus on quality rather than quantity, then you're able to use some of those improvements to start to challenge the beliefs. And then if you do later work with specifically focusing on some of those beliefs and trying to give information that says, you know, maybe it's not about this, then people are able to improve. Further. So either way, we want to be able to reduce the struggles or hyperarousal levels. Uh, and I, I do think you need some belief change in order for those improvements to really last. Got it. Yeah. So there's like an old saying, it's like, uh, it's not the problem that's the problem. It's how you think about the problem. So it's kind of like, Someone might be getting enough sleep, but they have that belief that because they're not getting the perfect amount, is it like that they get themselves aroused into a state where it's stressing them out or their cortisol is high or um, inflammation is up or like, I guess, what, what is, uh, what's, what's the problem with the faulty belief is what I'm really asking. Yes. Yeah. It, it is the impact that it has on arousal and also the impact it has on the behaviors. So if someone has insomnia, there's a few traps that they fall into. Uh, one of the traps might be that they spend too long in bed. Uh, so they might be in bed for like 10 or 11 hours a night or keep going to bed earlier, thinking that, oh, I need more sleep. I'm not sleeping well, so I need to be in bed for longer. Whereas we know if we can actually cut down the time in bed sometimes to how much sleep someone needs, then it might not mean that they're sleeping way longer, but the percentage of time in bed is, is a lot uh, it's better sleep. So essentially your sleep efficiency or time in bed spent sleeping becomes a lot higher, even if your total sleep time doesn't increase too much. So we want to reduce the stress. Uh, we want to reduce the time awake in bed. We want to reduce how much people nap during the day, but we also want to challenge some of those beliefs. So people with insomnia, they tend to worry about things a lot, especially about sleep or how they're going to feel during the day. So we want to shift some of that worry or suppression, trying to push thoughts away and turn it more into helpful things that they can do in those moments. So, you know, distraction in bed or acceptance have been shown to be a lot better than either worry or suppression. Got it. Yeah. So if someone was spending too much time in bed, they could be missing out on other things like socializing or work, for example, like I can imagine that'd be like an obvious problem. Um, and then with the napping, is that like, just for people with insomnia that you would recommend they don't nap or what basically what would be your kind of general guidelines around around napping? Yeah, with napping, um, ideally, if you, you want to make sure that you have a consistent good night's sleep from night to night, you want to try to keep the naps to under a half an hour, maybe 20 minutes is ideal. Uh, and you also don't want to have it too late in the day. So I don't recommend more than a half an hour and I don't recommend after 4 p.m. 
nice. That's like a, an, a practical and an effective approach. And then I feel like you're talking a little bit about like worry. So what is, you're a psychologist really. So what is the issue with worrying? Why is like, you know, or is worrying pretty bad? Can you just, you know, elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, sure. I think it's interesting. I, I would say our minds are, they're problem solving machines. So they're always thinking about what's the issue here and how can I fix it? And so worrying is really just your brain trying to sort something out. But the problem is, let's say you've been having sleep problems for four months or six months. Uh, your mind has probably already thought about all of the solutions that it can think of. Like it's not thinking about anything new. So it's continuing to think about the worst possible case scenario. And it's maybe thinking, you know, there's nothing I can do here or I feel helpless or I feel hopeless. And it doesn't take too long for that to get out of control, get to the point where we feel really stressed, really tense. And then the more stressed and tense you are in bed, the harder it's going to be to be able to be relaxed enough to switch off and have a good night's sleep. Yeah, so it's like if our body doesn't find a solution to the problem, our mind sees that as a problem and it starts to worry even more almost. Would it be like a downward spiral type of effect? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't take too long that I've seen where they're just in a state of huge distress and they're telling me that they're not sleeping at all. And that, that is because of that vicious cycle. And they start to not sleep well and then they start to worry about it more and then they start to feel more and more stressed and anxious in bed and then they start to sleep worse and then it just spirals out of control. Yeah, I've actually experienced that uh, almost like a panic attack where it kind of, I was worrying and then I worried more and it kind of just spiraled out of control. It's very, it's very scary. So uh, with your work, with the, the changing of people's beliefs and the cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, how would you address somebody's worry, like in general or, or insomnia around sleep? Yeah, uh, in the first session, we do uh, psychoeducation, so information around sleep. Uh, and ideally, a lot of the stuff that we're presenting is stuff that can challenge some of the, the previously held beliefs as well. So I think we really go into uh, what homeostatic pressure is. So homeostatic pressure is something that rises from when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed at night. And generally, we want that to be as high as possible when we go to sleep. And that's the way of really saying to people that, hey, if you spend more time out of bed, let's say 15 and a half, 16 hours out of bed during the day, it's actually going to give you a greater chance of having a good night's sleep the next night. Uh, we go through circadian rhythms as well and talk about um, you know, it's not good to necessarily go to bed earlier and earlier. It's actually better to wait until it's the right time for your body. Like I, I consider myself a good sleeper, but if I went to bed at 7 p.m., I'm not going to be able to sleep for a few hours. And that's not because I'm a bad sleeper or have insomnia. It's because I'm going to bed at the wrong time for my body. So you give information around sleep and around things that give, them, give people a greater sense of control. And then once they can understand what's going on and why it's going on, then hopefully they can try a few new things, see the positive benefits that it has, and then over time the worry starts to decrease. Yeah, very practical. So I've learned a little bit about self-efficacy or people's belief uh, that they can complete certain tasks. How common is it that someone with poor sleep actually believes that, like for example, they're a poor sleeper or that they can't improve their sleep or there's something wrong with them or you know how they approach their sleep? So basically. How often is it that they have low self-efficacy with sleep? 
Um, I, I would say quite often. I, I don't think really I've ever had anyone come in and say I have self low self-efficacy with sleep, but what they do say is they say, oh, you know, I'm a terrible sleeper. I'm a bad sleeper. I'm an insomniac. Uh, you know, I'm never going to be able to sleep well. And so they have very low belief in their ability to change things. And they've probably read a lot of stuff on the internet already about, you know, what they should do. And they'll have a look at sleep hygiene charts and they'll come in and they'll say nothing works. And so it can be to challenge that, that low self-efficacy initially, because if people believe that nothing's going to work, then they're not really willing to try anything. So you need to, you know, start low with them or start small and just say, Let, let's try this for a little bit. I know it hasn't necessarily worked in the past, but let's just give these one or two things a go and see how that goes. And once you get a little bit of improvement with that, then people's self-efficacy starts to build their belief in themselves. And then it can keep growing over time. But you do have to kind of reinforce that when people have had a good night or a good week, what helped them to do that? And then how can they keep doing that going forward? Yeah, it's like a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And you kind of label yourself through a quick Google search, like I have, you know, insomnia. And then you're like, kind of off the races, your mind is like, right, you know, trying to fix it. And it's like, yeah, it mightn't be that severe of a problem. But uh, have you, so, so you're talking about like, clients and them figuring out what works for their sleep so that they can kind of recreate better night's sleep. Do you use things like a, a sleep journal with, with people you work with? Uh, I wouldn't say a sleep journal. Uh, we, we do have a sleep diary that I give to some people. Now, this is essentially where you just track uh, your sleep each night. So in the morning when you wake up, you say, how was my sleep last night? What time did I go to bed? How long did it take me to fall asleep? Uh, how long was I awake for during the night? What time did I get out of bed? And then from that, you can tell, you know, how much sleep did someone get? How good was their efficiency? Uh, in terms of journaling, there's a strategy that we do maybe a few hours before bedtime called constructive worry. And that's more about if you know that there are things that are going to be running through your mind at night when you're in bed, let's jot them down a few hours before and let's come up with a brief plan for it. It doesn't have to be everything, but... You know, what is the next action you can take to address this and when can you do it? And if you write that down, then hopefully you won't be thinking about it as much in bed and your brain can be like, yep, I've got this. That can wait till tomorrow. That can wait till next week. Yeah, you kind of like declutter your mind before bed. Sounds like that sounds very, very useful. So yeah, we've talked a little bit about the circadian rhythm. Could you just talk about what it is and then, you know, what work you do on it related to sleep? Sure. So circadian rhythm, I think it's Latin for about a day. It just means that we all have different things in our body that run on about a 24-hour cycle. So we know that cortisol tends to spike in the morning to help people get up and get going for the day. Uh, we know that growth hormone tends to be highest around midnight. People or a few hours after people fall asleep to help their cells restore and help them grow. Um, and we know that melatonin kicks in about two hours before bedtime. So melatonin is a hormone that helps us to feel sleepier. Uh, and if we have too much light at nighttime, that could be an issue. So really what we try to do is, you know, maximize the bright light when people first wake up. So get them to go out for maybe 10 or 20 minutes in that first hour after waking. And that tells them that it's daytime, switch off the melatonin, let's get going. Uh, and then in that last, say, two hours before bed, the less time that people can spend on bright screens, so TVs or computers or phones, the better. Um, there are things you can do. You can wear blue light blocking glasses, and that means you can watch TV and it's not an issue. 
or you can put on uh, blue light blocking filters, different things. But it's just trying to minimize how much light exposure people get at nighttime before bed and maximize how much they get in the morning. Yeah, it's almost um, a primitive, feels like a primitive approach to, to sleep because we wouldn't have had as much light as we do now, or light pollution, I should say, as we do now. So uh, yeah, it's very important. But I just, I think a lot of people, especially maybe you've seen this in your work uh, with like their phones or screen time, has screen time gone up a lot over the last couple of years? Oh, definitely. I would say since the introduction of the smartphone, which I, I can't remember what year it was, maybe 2010, 2012, uh, but the amount of time that people spend on screens is, is huge. I, I think it's really cut into a lot of our leisure time. Uh, and you'll see people that go to bed with their phones and they're, they're on the phone right up until they fall asleep. And that just means that know kind of signals to the brain that it's still daytime in some way especially the blue light so um you know keeping the phones out of the bedroom or doing things to minimize light before bed is a nice way to signal to the brain that the day's over uh and it, it's time for sleep yeah the brain is going to have no idea between uh, the light of the phone and, and the, the the light of the sun so yeah uh it's definitely better to cut it cut it out do you have any kind of like general recommendations that you give to clients um, or for anyone listening in terms of like a sleep routine at night or a circadian kind of routine, anything along those lines that, you know, you see people typically have challenges with uh, nowadays that they can improve on. Yeah, I, I think it's about being realistic with yourself. And I really think that um, if you know that you're somebody who likes to watch TV before bedtime with your partner or you like being on your phone before bed, that's okay. But we need to do some things to offset it. So ideally, if you can be off your phone or off screens, that's great. And do things to wind down. It might be listening to music or relaxation or just talking with people. But if you can't do that, then do invest in maybe some blue light blocking glasses sources so you can use f.lux on your computer and all of these things block out the blue light which also kind of means that your brain realizes that it is nighttime uh, and it helps you to feel more sleepy and ready for sleep yeah i have the, the f.lux on my computer actually yeah and something i try to do is not to be working you know into the evening because it keeps my brain so alert like kind of uncomfortably alert when I when I really want to be winding down and getting ready for you know for bedtime and, and to relax. Um, so some of the other work you've done is around um, restless leg syndrome um, and idiopathic hyperinsomnia and chronic fatigue. Could you just talk about that and as well uh, sleep apnea. These are kind of like some of the common sleep conditions. I know sleep apnea is pretty common as well, but um, some of the other ones like the restless leg syndrome, I've heard of it. And uh, I was thinking one day when I had like too much coffee, I was trying to relax in bed. I was like, do I have restless leg syndrome? Because I'm like so hammed up on the coffee, but I'm like, that is uh, way too much of a jump. But uh, I can imagine uh, people could have it without actually being aware of it. So can you talk a little bit about these conditions? Yeah, sure. So most people would probably know obstructive sleep apnea the most. That's where uh, your breathing stops during sleep or when people snore a lot. But it's often where rather than just a steady snore, where sometimes people actually stop breathing for a bit and then they kind of choke and wake up. Um, so that can happen for some people 
I don't know, 30, 50 times an hour. And what that means is it really does prevent them from getting the quality of sleep that they need. So they can use uh, CPAP, which is a continuous positive air pressure. It's a little mask that goes on your nose um, and it can help a lot. So it really does mean that you don't stop breathing, but it can be really uncomfortable and scary for people to get used to. So what a psychologist does is they help you get more used to that. So you do something called uh, gradual exposure or habituation, where you just get more used to it over time. So you practice wearing it during the day and then eventually you become less scared of it at nighttime and you can put it on, it helps you sleep, it helps your apnea, but it doesn't lead to insomnia. So I often see people that have insomnia that goes along with the CPAP and just get them more comfortable with that. Uh, restless leg syndrome is where people feel that they can't stop moving their legs or stop twitching their legs. And that can really disrupt sleep quality as well. So what we often try to do is we look at, you know, what are the factors that make it worse? Now too much caffeine would, uh, too much alcohol can make it worse sometimes too, or, you know, over-exercising can make it worse. So we really just look at things that, and try to reduce some of the things that can make it worse uh, and also do things to reduce stress as well. So the less stressed people are, generally the more relaxed their body is as well. So, you know, we use similar strategies for different conditions. But idiopathic hypersomnia is where uh, people just feel tired all the time. So they might be getting enough hours of sleep, but they're still really exhausted. So we do try to improve the quality of sleep for them and try to help improve the quality of life. Uh, and then you've got chronic fatigue. That's a similar thing as well in that, you know, it doesn't really matter how many hours of sleep they get, they still feel really tired. So you do things to try to improve sleep at night and also improve energy during the day. Yeah, that sounds uh, particularly nasty, but uh, it's, it's good to know that there's ways to treat it uh, with expert health such as yourself. So then you have a book coming out, um, Deliberately Better Sleep. Could you talk a little bit about that? And without giving too much away, just uh, maybe gloss over some of the, the main tips you have in there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm working with some publishers at the moment to get that out. Um, hopefully it'll be out sometime in the first half of the year. But it really just goes into all of the different things that I think are useful to know about sleep. I, I think a lot of times people, they hear strategies to try and they try them, but they're not really sure why they're trying them or if that's the right strategy for them. So I really try to help people understand like the three main things that they need to know. Uh, which are those underlying mechanisms, so sleep pressure, circadian rhythms, and the third one is hyperarousal, and what you can do to target those issues, and then how, can, how you can figure out which strategies are best for you to try and if those strategies are working for you. And if they are, then how you can keep that going going forward. So it's like, uh, is it almost like a workbook or it's very uh, practically applicable? Yeah, yeah, it does have some questions in there that people can answer, but they don't have to as well. So you can just read through it. But it's probably better if you go through that process of really, you know, doing the baseline assessment on yourself, figuring out which parts you want to improve, figuring out what the, the biggest issue is for you and what strategies are most likely to help. That. Brilliant. Yeah. When is that forecast for you released? Any, any idea when you'll be able to get it published? Uh, so, yeah, I am working with a publisher and an editor at the moment. Um, and we've asked for, you know, some recommendations from other experts. So, yeah, I, I do hope at some point this first half of the year will be out, maybe June or July. Uh, but if anyone's interested, I, I'm going to, um, you know, have an email list on my website, damonashworthpsychology.com. And so if people sign up to that, then as soon as the book's released, I'll send out an email and just let everyone know. Perfect. Yeah, looking forward to that. So 
I asked, what has your research led you to change about your sleep? And, and you gave me a little answer. Could you go into detail about that? Um, and maybe uh, talk about how other people can uh, learn from what your research has taught you to improve their sleep too. Yeah, I, I think from all the things I've read about it, one thing I really first realized was that uh, I didn't have insomnia. So there, there were times when I was younger where it just took ages for me to fall asleep. And so sometimes people get confused with that and they think it might be sleep initiation insomnia. But the problem was like if it was a weekend or I stayed out late, I would fall asleep really quickly. So it was actually more to do with my body clock and I had what was called delayed sleep phase disorder. Uh, and if I could do things to bring my body clock forward or if I could sleep at the right time for me, then I would sleep long enough, I would sleep well, uh, but I'd just sleep in quite late the next day as well. So I did some things to try to make my schedule a bit more regular. I did things to wait until I feel sleepy before I go to bed, things to wind down before sleep, definitely things to stay off bright light before sleep, uh, to get bright light in the morning. And then probably just instituted a, a 10 minute a day meditation practice. And all of those things really helped. Very good. Yeah, that, that was actually something I wanted to touch on, the meditation. So um, you talked just a little bit about like what you would recommend for meditation and how people could use it for sleep or, you know, how it impacts or improves sleep if it does outside of using it, we'll say before sleep, like maybe throughout the day. Yeah, definitely. Meditation is a skill that, it's not going to necessarily have like super quick improvements straight away, but if you do it consistently, so I've been doing it 10 minutes a day since maybe 2010, then what you'll find is over time, your brain actually does start to change. So we know that uh, people's prefrontal cortex or their rational part of their brain, over time, the pathway from there to your limbic system or your emotional part of the brain becomes a lot stronger. So that means when you get upset about something, or you sorry about something, you're able to use your rational part of your brain a bit more to calm yourself down or to reassure yourself. So it's one of those things that if you want to learn how to manage stress better or manage anxiety better, it's definitely worth doing. And you might not notice it straight away, but say six months, 12 months later, you'll start to realize that things don't upset you as much as they used to, and you're going to feel a lot more resilient or, or more like you can manage whatever gets thrown your way. Very good, yeah. So it's kind of like you become or you're, you're administering almost like CBT on yourself, it sounds like. But um, definitely the resiliency or just being kind of like maybe uh, more calm in the face of challenges is something I've noticed like slightly, but um, it's definitely something you just have to keep at. And even the routine in and of itself can, uh, can help keep me grounded. So I, I definitely find it effective. Um, in your opinion, is there any types of meditation that are better for people who struggle with sleep or... Is there any certain types of meditation or, or durations uh, or apps even that you would recommend over other ones? Uh, with psychology, the one we talk about the most would be mindfulness meditation. Um, so what it separates it from some of the other meditations, they've got uh, seven attitudinal factors I think they talk about. So John Kabat-Zinn wrote about that, but essentially, you know, non-judging uh, open-minded, non-striving, beginner's mind, a bunch of these things just really mean that you can start to approach anything you do with those attitudes. And if you notice yourself judging, then you're not being mindful. So mindfulness meditation is what I talk about the most, but there are other meditations that people can do that I think can be just as effective. Um, like I went to a Vipassana meditation retreat where we were silent for 10 days, and I wouldn't recommend for everybody to do a 10-day retreat, but 
even just giving yourself a space where you sit down and you're doing nothing else and you're just focusing on your breath, that's going to help you over time to, you know, to feel more settled and to be less scared of what's going on internally. So Vipassana meditation is okay. Mindfulness is really good. Uh, transcendental meditation is another one that people do where they have a mantra. So there's all different types, and I think it's really just about finding what works for you and then just trying to get into a regular daily habit with it if you can. Yeah. Yeah, and it does work. So just trusting in that. Um, and it, like anything, it takes time. Um, but that's interesting. You mentioned a retreat. So I just had a friend tell me that they were on a retreat as well and they found it like amazing. And their big takeaway was that there's so few things to worry about. But I think society kind of makes us worry about things almost like the culture is to worry sometimes. Um, so just something personally I noticed is that uh, what you learn in, in the mindfulness meditation with John Kabat-Zinn is that uh, a lot of the, the teachings he gives are very hard to apply in modern society. You know, it's like, for example, in America, I don't know if you've been out here, but it's very like the culture is very consumeristic. It's like more is better or strive for more or work harder. Um, so to kind of meet the teachings of meditation and what you learn, it's almost like when you meditate, you step into one world. Then when you step into, you know, back into normal daily life, it's like they're kind of they're like the opposite. Do you have any thoughts around how you can bring what you learn from meditation into your daily life? Mm. Yeah, I do think, uh, I, I think a lot of meditation came from Eastern philosophies, which is, is quite different to maybe, you know, Western mainstream society. And I think there are a lot of traps. So in terms of what we get exposed to with media or with news, um, it, it is very different. But I think that's why it's probably just as important or even more important. So it's really just understanding, you know, when I meditate or when I focus on some of these things that they talk about, what difference does that have in terms of how I feel or in terms of how I think about life? So materialism is just feeling like you always need more. But is that true? You know, how many things do you have in your life are essential or the things that you really need and how much are just wants? So I think for me, it's about tuning into your values and just saying, what type of life do I want? What is really important to me? And then trying to live your life in line with that rather than what society or what the media or anything says is how you should be living your life. Because I think there, there can be some traps, but it's really just getting back to living the life that's right for you and seeing what feels best for you. Yeah, that, that values work is something I've done recently. Um, do you do that with clients? And uh, do you think that, the values work is something that you kind of like, do you have to do it repeatedly to kind of remind yourself of what's important based on, you know, how much marketing there is in society or how, how often we can be pulled, you know, in different directions, which may not be in line with our values. Do you think we need to keep revisiting our values you know, on a kind of periodic basis? Uh, becoming aware of what they are is important. So there can be some different exercises out there where you look at all the lists of different values and you try to understand like, which of these is very important to me, which is quite important, which is not so important. So we, we can clarify or get a bit clearer on what are important to us. I know there's a VIA character strength survey, which also identifies what your strengths might be in terms of which values you put into action the most. Um, but once you know what they are, you don't have to keep trying to figure out what they are. But maybe it's good to have a list of, you know, what are the five things that are most important to me? And then can I just look back on that sometimes? So it might not have to be every day, but maybe once a week we just check in and say, how much am I living by what's really important to me? Um, one exercise that I think about a lot is in terms of fear versus values. So I ask, what is motivating me here? 
And if the decision that I'm thinking about making is because I'm afraid of something rather than because it's in line with my values, then it's probably going to be not so great for me or something that I regret. Whereas if I make that decision based on what's important to me, then generally I don't tend to regret it down the track. Well, that's a really interesting exercise, actually. Um, that's definitely something I want to give a try to myself. Um, so speaking of work that you do with clients, what are some of the, the common misconceptions people have that you typically work with? You know, kind of like around sleep or maybe just general beliefs um, that they have that uh, just are not serving their mental health. Yeah, so definitely around sleep. There's one questionnaire called the Dysfunctional Beliefs About Sleep Scale. And there's a shortened version of that called the DBAS-16. And that goes into the most common insomnia beliefs. So one of the ones is uh, people say, I need eight hours of sleep. And by doing that, then it means that as soon as they're in bed for, say, seven hours or seven and a half hours, then they start to get really stressed because they're like, oh, I'm not going to have enough sleep. And so it's good to challenge beliefs like that and say, hang on, have there been times where you've only had five hours and you've still functioned okay the next day or got through work? And then we're able to make people realize that, all right, maybe eight's ideal for me, but maybe I can survive on five. Maybe five, a few nights a week, not a problem at all. So that's one belief. Uh, we've got a bunch of others, but some can be around medication. So some people feel like, oh, I need a sleeping pill in order to sleep well. And we want to start to challenge that or otherwise people can get issues with addiction or they feel dependent on something. Um, some are about like the consequences. So if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to be wrecked for the rest of the week or tomorrow is going to be absolutely horrible or anything bad that happens is because I didn't sleep well. So we want to start to challenge all of those. Um, when it comes to depression, often what you'll find is people have beliefs that are quite negative about themselves, about other people of the world and about the future. And if you've got all of those, then that's where it's pretty hard to not be depressed. So we really just want to look at, okay, what are those beliefs that are holding you back here? Or, you know, what, what do you feel you get stuck on or really upsets you? And then we want to try to come up with different ways to be able to challenge those. A bit. So let's say somebody is, feels that they're completely worthless. What are those times where in your life you've been able to hang out with other people or people have done nice things for you, even though you haven't asked them? You know, what are some of the things that show you that maybe other people see that you have worth, even if you don't quite see it? And then by using some of those uh, other evidence or things that people don't tend to see, then we can slowly start to challenge it. Very good. Yeah, challenging the belief. So is that an example that you just gave there? Is that an example of CBT? Yeah, CBT is definitely about thought challenging or cognitive restructuring. Uh, and one of the main questions that I ask people is once they're aware of what their thoughts are in a situation is, are these thoughts true or are they realistic? And then after that, you'd ask, are they helpful? And if they're neither realistic or helpful, what's a more realistic or a more helpful way to think about that? And generally by challenging their thoughts in that way, you know, it doesn't have to be super positive thinking and say, oh, instead of I'm awful, I'm amazing. But maybe I'm not as bad as what I think sometimes. And then if people can tell them things that they believe, then it can help them get unstuck from the thoughts they're having and start to realize that there's a few different possibilities here. So they become a little bit less trapped by their mind. So mindfulness can do that. But CBT can also do that. Very good. Yeah. So it sounds like you're trying to get people. So when they're in a low place like depression, you're trying to get them from there to a more kind of moderate or more reasonable approach to themselves in life. Is that fair to say? I, I think it's more realistic. Like if somebody 
is in the pit of depression and they just think that they're absolutely awful and that they have no positive traits, it's pretty unrealistic to get them to say to themselves, I'm amazing, I do nothing wrong, everything about me is great, because they, they won't buy into it at all. So it's much better, I think, to start with a more realistic place of, I have some good and bad traits, but maybe, you know, maybe I'm all right in some ways, or maybe some other people can see some good things about me. And then that way, when people say that instead, then and they're going to start to believe it a little bit more and it's going to help them to maybe make some behavioral changes that they would like to, but previously they haven't had the confidence. So we can do little shifts in behavior, but then we want belief changes and then we want behavior changes. So I think they need to go together. But if you try to go too extreme with one or the other, then that's where people won't try it or they won't buy into it. Yeah, they're going to push back on it. Yeah. I feel like it's a good example of how important connection is. So like if someone's kind of feeling low, and uh, someone such as you who's got expertise in how to deal with uh, mental challenges or depression, uh, the connection can kind of almost like balance them out. You know, your strength and their weakness can kind of, you know, balance each other out. So uh, for something like depression, or you can sit, you can correct me here, but I feel like self-criticism is, it goes, it's quite closely tied into depression. So, um, so two questions. So how would you avoid depression or what are certain ways to avoid depression? And uh, it's self-criticism tied into it because I feel like I've noticed it a lot. The more aware I've become of it in myself, I see it a lot in other people. And I think at times when I was depressed, for example, during the pandemic, which was like, you know, challenging for everybody, I think I was kind of at my most self-critical. So uh, ways to avoid depression and does self-criticism tie into it? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I feel like they're two separate answers. So ways to avoid depression, I, I think a lot of that comes back to emotion regulation strategies or things that can help you to feel a bit better over the long term. So I think, you know, one of the things that people with depression do is they isolate themselves a bit too much. And so we want to make sure that we stay connected where we can. So even if you don't really feel like talking to people, um, it's a good idea to have, you know, a few times a week where you check in with people, whether in person or on the phone or on the internet, and just stay a bit more connected. Um, you know, sometimes people can use alcohol or drugs too much as well. So doing things to try to eat healthily, to exercise regularly, all of these things can help us to feel a bit better and not get down as quickly. Uh, in terms of self-criticism, yeah, it, it can definitely make people feel worse. So I was saying before that you need to have pretty negative thoughts about yourself or negative thoughts about the future. And so self-criticism can lead to both. You know, if you're always beating up on yourself, then eventually you're not going to feel so great about yourself. Uh, if you're always beating up on what you do, then you might think, oh, I'm never going to be able to get out of this. So being able to shift that a bit, and we can do that through mindfulness, where we just teach people that it's not the thoughts that we have, but how much we get caught up in them that's the problem. That can help shift out of it. So you know, just realize that a thought is just a thought and I'm okay. Or we can use more the CBT approach and saying, all right, I notice that I'm being self-critical here, but is that true? Is it realistic? Is there a more helpful way for me to approach this? And I think both, um, you know, self-forgiveness and self-compassion <clears throat> can be really important there. So there's a, there's a bunch of research about that. I think Kristen Deneff writes about it and a few others. And if you can practice self-compassion, even through meta meditation, then it does help you to forgive yourself a bit more when you make a mistake and stay on track. Yeah, Christian Neff's work is really good on, on self-compassion. And uh, I feel like it, it all ties back into the sleep as well, where you can kind of regulate your mood more effectively if you're sleeping 
well if you can get the recovery you need. Um, so just kind of out of curiosity, I just want to see if you want to try this. But so we spoke off air about me doing a little bit of writing myself. And I feel like CBT sounds like a very effective tool, but I think people don't know enough about it or how it actually works. Would it work if we were to do a role play where you were to talk me through writing uh, a little bit more and we could see like maybe I have some beliefs that you could challenge based on your expertise? Um, maybe. So can you think of a time recently where you wanted to write, but you weren't able to do it or you found it too, too hard? Yeah, since the start of the year, it's been like a, a New Year's resolution to write. So the goal was to do like yep. one, one a month. And uh, I kind of got off to uh, a good start where I kind of, similar to you writing your book, I got like two weekends in and I wrote an article. And then after that, it kind of tapered off. Okay. So can you think of a, a recent time where you wanted to sit down and write, but you didn't? Yeah, I think the last two weeks it's been in the back of my mind and I haven't, I haven't pulled the trigger. Okay. So if you can think about a specific time there, um, what do you think you were feeling? What emotion? Uh, sort of feeling like maybe a lack of belief or, um, I think the word is motivation, lack of motivation, but I don't think that's what it was because I know I want to do it. It's like uh, maybe the challenge was too big, you know, like it was uh, too big a challenge based on the resources I had. Okay. And so was the emotion associated with that maybe anxiety? Um, yeah, like anxiety or maybe just more like uncertainty or sort of like ambivalence. Okay, great. So if it is around uncertainty or ambivalence, then what we need to do is we need to try to remove some of that if possible. So I wonder, do you ever set times where you say, I'm going to write? Do you put it into your calendar or into your diary and say, on this day at this time, I'm going to write? So, yeah, I had been doing that and then work as uh, maybe, maybe it's the same in the psychology world, but in the, the fitness world, there's a huge uptick in work. So the, the, the fitness work, the day-to-day -day work got prioritized and I pushed back the, the back-end work of writing and I said, oh, I'll push it off a few months. And it felt better in the short term, but uh, I still want to write and it's not getting done. So um, I didn't set a time uh, in, the, in the short term to do it. Okay. So, you know, one way we can is we can say to ourselves, like, at this time, on this day, I'm going to do it. And if you have to have a session because you just need to get the, you need to do some more work, that's okay. But in those moments, say, all right, when can I reschedule that for? So I think if we don't make time for it, then it's easy to push it back and say, I'll get to it at some, at some stage. So we can either say, you know, I'm too busy, I can't do that. Let's put it in the calendar for two months later. Or we can say, no, nah, uh, Tuesday at 6 p.m., I'm going to do it no matter what. So, yeah, set a kind of a, a clear, specific time slot around it that it gets done yeah yeah i think that's important for overcoming uh uncertainty and also maybe a little bit of anxiety but i would also just really look at those beliefs so you know if you think about a time when you thought about doing it but you wanted to do it but you didn't i would look and say okay i'm feeling maybe a bit uncertain a bit anxious what beliefs there might be contributing to that is it i'm telling myself that it needs to be perfect or what might i be thinking that leads to me maybe wanting to put it off until later. Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, 
I know I have the ability to do it. Like I've written an article before, but I think my beliefs this time are like I'm overwhelmed or I'm just sort of uncertain. And then that prevented me from setting a specific time. So that's, yeah, that's really useful. Hopefully that's a good example for, for people. Yeah. So, so if you can become aware of that and we can start to challenge that in some way and say, you know, all right, it needs to be perfect. Let's just imagine that was the belief. And then you say, is that true? Actually, no. You know, even Ernest Hemingway would always say that the first draft of anything is, is trash. And so if a great writer says the first draft of anything's trash, why does it need to be perfect for me the first time? So if we can re reduce our expectations, sometimes that can make it easier to get started. Or we can do what Stephen King says. And he's like, ah, I just write 2,000 words a day. doesn't matter how good a quality it is, but I make sure that I write those 2,000 words every day. So it can be whatever you want, but if it's under your control, and that might be the quantity of how much you write rather than quality, then we can do that. But if we're saying to ourselves, I need to you know, make an awesome article, that might be scary enough that we're like, oh, I'll do that later. Yeah, so the belief is it's sort of, uh, I'm building it up in my head or an actual fact, that's not serving me. That belief is an inhibiting action. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, so it's kind of, you have an article called uh, Six Thinking Traps We Fall Into. This sounds like a thinking trap. Uh, you can correct me, but what are the, the six thinking traps that you uh, you went into detail in, in this article? <laughs> I read that article a while ago, um, but I, I do remember one was because justification. Uh, and that's that often if we say to someone because, even if we don't have a good excuse after it, then people tend to see it as a more valid reason. Um, others can be like the sunk cost fallacy. So sometimes if people are making a decision, then they include all of the past investment that they've made towards it. So let's say you've booked a holiday and you've already paid a deposit, but then another group of friends invite you on a holiday at the same time. Um, a sunk cost fallacy or the falling into a trap would be if you're like, oh, I've already invested in the other trip, I'm going to go on that, even if you think that you enjoy the second one better. So if you're going to enjoy the second one better, regardless of how much you've invested previously, the, the right rational decision is to go on the second trip. And there's a bunch of other um, cognitive distortions or things, but the book that I got it from was The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf Dabelli, and he goes into those six as well as I think about 93 others. So if anyone's really interested, um, Thinking Fast or Slow by Daniel Kahneman goes into them, and The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf Trevelli goes into a lot of them as well. That sounds good, The Art of Thinking Clearly. I, I like the sound of that one. I'll have to pick it up. I've read uh, Thinking Slow and Fast as well. That's a very, very good book. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it feels like the sun cost fallacy is like you're going to stick to an approach on principle, even if the facts tell you to do otherwise it's it, it sounds it's on the outset when you're not in it it feels it looks so silly but when someone's invested in it it's like you know it's almost like uh impossible to overturn uh, yeah and, and what that often leads to is that sometimes people do stay in jobs or relationships that they don't think are good for them just because they've invested a lot so with relationships you know if you have children that's a different thing but let's say you've been with someone for four years, you don't have kids, and you just really feel like it's not the right relationship for you. Sometimes it's important to not think about how much you've done so far, but to think about, you know, going forward for the rest of my life, do I think this is the right relationship for me? Yeah, yeah. And being like flexible as well in your mindset where you can consider a thought like that is really important for like your, your long-term well-being because you can suffer 
needlessly for years, stuck in a job, relationship, what have you, needlessly, really. Exactly. Yeah. So then another article you had was uh, shame and guilt. And um, I feel like those are extremely powerful emotions. Um, I know Brene Brown has um, done a bit of work on that. And uh, it, it was really eye-opening. And I think, I don't know in Australia what it's like, but in Ireland, there's like a, a term like Catholic guilt. Just, you're just guilty for you just feel guilty for no good reason or yeah. if there's anything that could set you off for feeling guilty you're just like yeah you know it's my fault or i'm you know bad or whatever so uh could you talk about those emotions and whether they're helpful or you know how they can be helpful yeah sure um so guilt and shame are often used fairly interchangeably and in that most people don't know the difference between them too much um but the main difference and this is what a few of the researchers have found is that shame is often about who you are as a person. So let's say, I don't know, you've hurt someone's feelings. You might say, oh, that's because I'm a bad person. Whereas if you feel guilty, it's like, no, it's not because I'm a bad person. It's because I did a bad thing. You know, so I did something that I'm, I'm not happy with, a certain behavior. But the good thing about guilt as opposed to shame is you can do more about that. So if you've done something that's upset someone, you can fix that. You can go up to them. You can say, sorry, you can try to make amends. You can try to make sure you don't do it again. But if it's shame, if it's more about, oh, I'm just a bad person, then often that doesn't lead to people trying to learn from that because they're like, oh, it's who I am. I can't do much about it. So where we can, we want to try to shift that shame into guilt and to think more in terms of behavior rather than who I am as a person. Yeah, that's the takeaway I heard as well, that we can do something about guilt, whereas shame, it's, it's almost like a toxic emotion. So, yeah, that's really, really practical because we can always do more uh, to correct the situation and mm -hmm. uh, yeah guilt is the healthier one of the two so just kind of uh, coming full circle so back to the sleep activity trackers for sleep can you tell us a little bit about them and, and how much you use them with uh, people you work with um, and how to effectively use them because I feel like a lot of people have activity trackers um, and they provide a lot of information that could be useful yeah uh, so I've been using activity trackers for over five years now, and, and I do feel like they keep getting better and better in terms of uh, how accurate they are. I, I think that I, I don't tell everybody to use them, but there are certain people that I see where if they say that they're basically getting no sleep at all, then that's where I'd really want a bit more of an objective measure. And that's where activity trackers can be useful. So if somebody says they're not getting any sleep at all, how likely is it that they're going to be in bed for eight hours a night every night and not sleeping at all? It's probably not that likely. So an activity track is good in that it can pick up on the difference between when people are waking and when people are sleeping. And I don't want people to spend hours looking at the data each day, but what a lot of them do now is they give you a number between zero and 100 in terms of how good was your sleep the night before. And generally, if you find that a good sleep shows a better number for you and a bad sleep shows a, a worse number, then it's a useful thing to, to look at. So it's just saying, all right, let's try something. And then if you notice that after say three or four nights or five nights, it's, it's showing better sleep for you, then it's probably a really good strategy for you. You wanna keep that up. And if you try something and you notice that it's just leading to worse and worse sleep for you on the activity tracker, then it's probably not the right strategy. You know, give it more than one or two nights, but definitely if after a week, you're noticing that it's making it worse and worse, then it's probably worth trying something else. So I think it's useful in that it can give us information when we're not awake. Um, I don't want people to get too obsessed by it, but it's just another piece that can give us more feedback on how we're doing. 
Yeah, exactly. It's, it's more information and uh, we can use it effectively or ineffectively. And uh, I feel like it kind of ties in a little bit with teachings of like meditation where, I don't know, maybe it's in Buddhism, but it's like to have curiosity and uh, to be uh, kind of unattached. Because if you get like too attached or you're like very rigid and how you view this data, it could like it could do a lot more harm than good. I feel like it, you could get a certain person who would use this information and it would actually worsen their sleep. Has, has there ever been the case that some people maybe become too preoccupied with the, the number and they don't actually focus on like the quality of their sleep, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't find that it's consistent, then that's where people can get too obsessed about it. So let's say that they think that they had a pretty good night of sleep, but then they look at the activity watches data and they find that uh, it showed them as not having a great sleep, then they'll change their perception. So I would never want it in those times where you've had a good night's sleep to look at the data and say, oh, this means I must have slept horribly because that's going to be yeah, counterproductive for someone with insomnia. But the opposite is true. So, you know, if you have a bad night of sleep and sometimes you look at the data and it's not quite as bad as you imagine, then that's good and it can help reduce people's anxiety. It can help them to feel like, all right, I might be able to function a bit better than I thought and then I might be able to sleep well tonight. Yeah, yeah, very good. So currently you are doing a little bit of volunteering. Could you just talk a little bit about that? And uh, you said it, it benefited, it can benefit mental health. And I think it's something that's like underutilized and. You know, a lot of people are pretty well off where they could give up some time to do some volunteering uh, similar to what you have done. So we just uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I think I said at the start, I'm volunteering in Vanuatu. Um, I'm Australian volunteer, so funded by the Australian government. And what I do is I, I give my time to the Ministry of Health here and just help with mental health issues. So. We've got a plan that's until 2030 and just until August this year, I'll be here assisting people and trying to build capacity in terms of how we address mental health issues, how we raise awareness, reduce stigma. So just trying to help as much as I can with giving my skills over uh, until there are enough psychologists here who can take over that work. So I think, you know, volunteering in general, it's been shown to be really good as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. So if people are just volunteering because they want somebody else to think that they're a good person, then maybe it's not going to have as many benefits. But, you know, if you really want to help people and you're not getting paid for it, then it can really help you to feel good because you know you're doing it for the right reasons. So for anyone who's thinking about it, I would suggest give it a go, try it out for a week or two, and then just notice if it does help you to feel better and it does help you to make a difference in the world. And generally, you know, the more good things you are doing, the better you're going to feel about yourself and you're going to know that you're making a difference. So I definitely recommend giving it a go if you haven't done it yet. Yeah, that's, that's very useful. And I think there's a lot, if someone just was a bit curious about it and they just looked for opportunities in their area, they would find uh, a plethora of uh, opportunities because you know so many people are in need of help. So yeah, uh, I'm definitely going to try and follow up on what I said before off air to, uh, to get doing some volunteer work myself. But I know you're tied for time, Damon. So is there anything that we didn't cover or any messages that you'd like to let people know about uh, before we finish up? Uh, no, I think we've covered most of it. I'd really just say, if you can, try not to focus too much on sleep hygiene if you're having difficulty sleeping. Um, there are other strategies out there that have more evidence behind them. So maybe check out stimulus control or sleep restriction 
or go and talk to a psychologist or a behavioral sleep medicine expert and really just you know see if they can help you through this because sleep problems especially insomnia they can be treated fairly quickly you know even four sessions can make a huge difference and if it means that for the rest of your life you're a good sleeper then it's it's worth investing in that time and effort very good actually it just reminds me of one final point is that one of the diagnostic criteria for insomnia is that you can't sleep enough so i think most people are aware that the, the guidelines for sleep are seven to eight hours and let's say someone is uh, chronically sleeping six hours would that person be and they want to sleep so they sleep six but they want to sleep seven day would a person like that so that's basically me would they be deemed you know on the scale on the on the spectrum of like insomnia does insomnia work on a spectrum like that or you know would it be something else yeah i'd say pretty much every mental health condition does work on a spectrum um i wouldn't consider it insomnia if someone's just sleeping six hours I would look more at other things in terms of how do they feel during the day? Does it cause functional impairment or, you know, reduce their quality of life or increase their distress? Uh, and if it is starting to have a big impact on their life, then yes, somebody who's only sleeping six hours who wants more might qualify for that. But if someone's sleeping six hours and they're feeling refreshed and they're functioning well during the day and it's not having a big impact on them or causing them distress, then they wouldn't have insomnia. So a lot of it is around you know, how much am I sleeping, but also how does that make me feel? There, there can be some people who sleep six hours a night for the rest of their life and they function really well and it's enough for them. So some people can sleep six and, and function pretty well with that. Some people need eight hours, but not everybody does. So I think in a lot of the studies that they've looked at, you know, seven was probably the, the healthiest, but it's, it's different for each person. So try to find the right amount of sleep that you need for yourself. And don't try to force for eight hours if you don't feel like you've ever really gotten that. Just see, you know, what helps me to function well during the day and do all the things that I want to do. Very good. Yeah, it's a case of uh, every individual case has to be taken uh, individually. And then if someone is struggling, they can always reach out to an expert such as yourself to uh, get the, the expert guidance that they may need. Uh, exactly. So thanks very much, Damon, for your time. I'll link. Uh, all your, your links, uh, your Medium website, and um, we'll uh, be able to stay in contact and see when the book comes out as well. Um, and uh, thanks very much for your time. Not a problem. Thank you, Russ.